This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Hey, this is the Bite Size Business Breakfast Podcast. Best bits from Tuesday, December the 19th, where we were lucky enough to speak to DP World's Group Chairman and Chief Executive, Sultan Ahmed bin Salem, who was kind enough to join us, or rather speak to our producer, Mohammed Suleiman. About a variety of subjects. One, the year that was, 2023, look ahead to 24. Uh, the news out this week that they are going to be shifting their HQ from Jebedali down to Expo City, the reasoning behind that one. And also taking advantage of it to speak to him about the ongoing developments in the Red Sea at the moment. Glenn Barkley also joined us live on the line, all the way from Ireland, no less. He's the principal FDI economist for global data. And Dubai coming out on top of the list of foreign direct investments this year, a notable achievement for the Emirates and a notable achievement for the region as a whole as they fought off competition from some of the uh, more well-established financial capitals around the world. Reasoning behind it, Glenn was happy to explain all. Back to that Red Sea story, and that was the big talker of the morning. Why? Because we were uh, watching developments in real time uh, as more and more companies made it public that they would not be transiting through the Red Sea route and the Red Sea passage. Captain Zaria S. Irani, the Managing Director of Constellation Marine Services, was kind enough to join us live in studio to basically explain the situation. Also in the news, interest rate cuts or the risk of interest rate cuts over in the United States. We've got reaction to that from several insiders. And on the Red Sea subject, uh, Matt Stanley was also on hand to give his thoughts and his comments on the potential of freight and cost rises, amongst others, and the impact it was going to have on the energy sector as a whole. That's all right here on the Bite Size Business Breakfast Podcast. George and I keeping an eye on some of the big talkers of the day. We're going to get back to the Red Sea dispute in just a few moments' time. Uh, But before that, George, you've been looking at the interest rate cuts over in the US. Uh, Squabbles there continuing. Yeah, so... um As we know, uh, in the middle of last week, the uh, Fed Reserve made an announcement which basically suggested that they were going to stop rising interest rates, raising interest rates. Um, Basically, the markets have appeared to put two and two together and come up with 130 because they have now suggested that the Fed indicated that there were going to be a certain number of cuts in the next year. Now, economists over in the States differ as to how many cuts they think they're going to see next next year in the States. They also differ as to how soon they could happen. But some people have come out and said that they reckon the first one will be in March. Now, the, now the Fed Reserve officials have come out quite strongly against that and just said, you know, you guys have taking it way too far. Where They're getting way too overexcited. Um, so, um, Chicago Fed President Austin Goolsby in particular came out yesterday. He told CNBC's Squawkbox that he thought that the markets had entirely overreacted. It's not what you say or what the chair says. It's what do they hear and what do they want to hear? I was confused a bit with the was the market just imputing. Here's what we want them to be saying. I thought there was seemed to be some confusion about how the FOMC even works. We don't debate specific policies speculatively about the future. We vote on that meeting. 
Yeah, he emphasised that ultimately the Fed is not in the business for crystal ball gazing when it comes to interest rates. We voted at that meeting not to raise rates. We forecast over next year that the individuals on the FOMC collectively thought conditions are going to not be a recession and inflation is going to be coming down, which would allow us to to reduce the restrictiveness. The data on inflation is the key thing that should drive our decision making. And we've seen significant improvement on the inflation front, bringing us back closer to, to our target. That is Chicago Fed President Austin Goolsbee. Now, the reason why we care so much about what the Fed does over in the United States is that if they say that, for example, there's going to be three uh, cuts in the next year, then that means we get three cuts too. And obviously that has a massive impact on any loan that you might have, be that a mortgage or a car or just any loan at all. So, yeah, it'd be interesting to see. I, I mean... You can understand where the markets went with that decision. You know, if they are throwing forward and saying ultimately the inflation is no longer rising and, you know, one of their jobs is to make sure that inflation doesn't go up and therefore if it's not going up, then interest rates could come down. But equally, economists in the States getting overexcited, I think. We will, uh, of course, bring you all the latest from that one. We've had the last rate cut of the year, so now all eyes will turn to 2024 on that one. Um What's the Red Sea going to be looking like in 2024? A question that many are asking at the moment. Why? Because uh, overnight the oil giant BP announcing it's pausing all shipments of oil through the Red Sea after more recent attacks on vessels. Uh, That is going to have a knock-on effect. We've heard that firsthand here in studio throughout the course of this morning. We've also had it put into context for us by Khatija Ahak about what it could mean for us Here, Katija, of course, from Emirates MBD. BP's decision to avoid sending ships through the Red Sea is the first tangible disruption to energy supplies as a consequence of the war in Gaza. And we've already seen this reflected in higher oil prices, with Brent up 2.5% on Monday. The Red Sea route is particularly important for tankers carrying liquid natural gas, LNG, to Europe. And European natural gas prices jumped 7% since Friday's close. The main driver for lower energy prices over the last couple of months has been concerns about weak demand on the back of slower global growth next year. While we could see a geopolitical risk premium return to oil and gas prices, it remains to be seen if this will be sufficient to offset weak demand pressures. Overall, we expect average oil prices in 2024 to be relatively unchanged from this year, around 82 to $83 a barrel. The big talker of the day is, of course, that oil giant BP announcing it's pausing all shipments of oil through the Red Sea after more recent attacks on vessels. Uh, to put this into context for us, we've been in touch with Katija Hack, Chief Economist of Emirates MBD. Uh, BP, the latest uh, major organisation to announce that they will be halting shipments. Uh, that's prompted the US uh, and uh, a conglomeration of other naval powers to come together to try and protect the waters. In fact, we understand that they are steaming towards the area as we speak at the moment. Uh, but what could this mean for us? A question we put to Katija from Emirates MBD earlier. BP's decision to avoid sending ships through the Red Sea is the first tangible disruption to energy supplies as a consequence of the war in Gaza. And we've already seen this reflected in higher oil prices, with Brent up 2.5% on Monday. The Red Sea route is particularly important for tankers carrying liquid natural gas, LNG, to Europe. And European natural gas prices jumped 7% since Friday's close. 
The main driver for lower energy prices over the last couple of months has been concerns about weak demand on the back of slower global growth next year. While we could see a geopolitical risk premium return to oil and gas prices, it remains to be seen if this will be sufficient to offset weak demand pressures. Overall, we expect average oil prices in 2024 to be relatively unchanged from this year around 82 to $83 a barrel. Get a bit more insight. Uh, we've been speaking to Matt Stanley, who he he's the client liaison lead for Middle East, Africa and Asia at Kipla. And he's also the co-host of the Smoking Barrel podcast. So, Matt, what does this all actually mean for ships carrying cargo, oil, fuel and others through the Red Sea? What it means for any tanker, whether it's a tanker, a container ship, a dry bulk carrier, a cargo carrier, whatever it's carrying, it adds around 15 days to the voyage to go around the Cape of Good Hope around South Africa. It's say if you're going into, say, Rotterdam. It means that a ship can burn about another 1,000 tonnes of bunker fuel, so there's an environmental impact. It means that, um, you know, people waiting for Christmas deliveries, you know, that they will be impacted. Like I said, environmentally, what it means. There's also a new uh, emissions system that's coming into place in January the 1st, so will owners be able to comply with that? It's, it's a far wider problem than just the Suez Canal being closed. It's, it has a, it will have an impact on everything from if you're buying a Mars bar, if you want to fill your tank up in Europe with um, with diesel. The people who will be affected the most will obviously be the producers in the region here who are sending material up to Europe because they need it because of the, the Russian embargo on, product, on, on cargoes there. Okay, um, that's all good and well. So that gives you an idea of the knock-on effects. But what about prices, prices for freight, and uh, what could possibly happen next? We see freight costs increasing by about 25%. What does it mean economically there? You know, the cost of living crisis, et cetera, et cetera. It's not good for the end user. It's not good for anyone, any of this anyway, but um, it will have an impact on a lot of people. And it's an ever-developing story, so... We'll keep you posted. Indeed, ever-developing, uh, and we are keeping an eye on it for you at the moment, as will the ARN news desk throughout the day. It is the story that seems to be dominating uh, the news agenda today. That's Matt, though. Uh, he's the Matt Stanley, that is, the client liaison lead for Middle East, Africa and Asia at Coupler, and also co-host of the Smoking Barrel podcast, giving us his expert opinions. Um, we will, uh, of course, monitor that one, and it'll be one, that, uh, Georgia, that uh, all the team will be watching throughout the day. It'd be interesting to see where we're at this time tomorrow. Yeah, 12% of the world's trade going through the Red Sea. So any disruption there causing serious repercussions. Yeah, we're going to get more insight, in fact, a little later on this morning, because uh, we've been talking to Captain Zaria S. Irani, who is the Managing Director of Constellation Marine Services, has uh, I've been involved in the marine industry for many, many years. Uh, so make sure you stay tuned for that one. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. The story developing this morning, as it has been over the last few days, it is emanating from the Red Sea. And we were lucky enough to talk to uh, Sultan Ahmed bin Salem a little earlier on, DP World's Group Chairman and Chief Executive. Uh, our producer, uh, producer Mohammed Suleiman, spoke to him, took the opportunity before talking, as we will a little later, about HQ um, changes, about the current situation in the Red Sea and if there was any hope on the horizon. The shipping line, I'm dealing with it. I mean, it's unfortunate to see disruptions uh, in the uh, Red Sea. Uh, you know, is that the first time it happened? It happened in the past, if you remember. First, we have the pirates, 
which we are doing it as a business, which eventually the world powers uh, intervened. I think now the world powers are also in the Red Sea and you'll see more and more engagement to deter these attacks and hopefully things will go back to normal. So he's hopeful of resolution quickly. What about some more uh, expert analysis? Well, you can't ask for better analysis uh, than the uh, managing director of Constellation Marine Services, a man uh, who served on the Lloyd's Register Advisory Committee. He's also the past president and current uh, director for the International Institute of Marine Surveying uh, and an IIMS board member as well. Uh, he is also registrar of the Antigua and Barbuda Maritime Flag Registry. Joining us live here in studio, friend of the show is Captain Zaria S. Sarani. Uh, Captain Sarani, thank you very much indeed for being with us. Thank you very much, Tom. Happy to be here. Uh, you were listening intently there to the thoughts of the chairman of DP World as well. Obviously, they will have vested interest in what's happening in the Red Sea. Before we get sort of more analysis, why is this part of the world? Why is the Red Sea so important to uh, maritime worldwide? Well, it's a shortcut to the uh, to the Mediterranean uh, from the uh, Arabian Sea, so to say. Uh, it saves somewhere like fourteen to seven days, depending on where you are going to the Medi. So it's 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 a shortcut. Basically, saves fuel time and uh, is uh, very economical for vessels to go through the uh, Red Sea via the Suez into the Mediterranean, and uh, that's what makes it uh, very important. Twelve percent of the world's uh, cargo moves through there and 10% uh, of the world's oil passes through. So it is an important uh, uh, transit uh, area. When we've seen, well, obviously we've seen announcements over the course of the last couple of days from various uh, marine and maritime operators, uh, BP announcing yesterday as well. And uh, when an oil giant like BP says they're going to put a halt to things, things sort of seem to change as well. How much of shipping is affected at the moment from your reading of the situation? Yeah, well, uh, BP is the 10th large uh, shipping company, which has actually said uh, they would not uh, transit that area simply because uh, of the reputational risk. Uh, can you imagine a, a, a tanker with a hole in its hull with the cargo spilling out mm. uh, the entire strait would be blackened uh, beaches and uh, and the first question they'll ask is whose ship was it or whose cargo was it and no oil major wants that reputational loss and it is better to be safe than sorry and uh, i think there'll be many more to follow uh, it's not that trade won't happen there is a longer cut to reach where they want to uh, round the uh, cape good hope and uh, uh, and it will uh, it will carry on. Uh, car, the the commitments will be readjusted. Rates will be readjusted. But uh, the shipping has its way to survive. It's been there for a million uh, odd years and uh, first mode of transport. So it will continue. Just a long cut. That's all. Is this a clear and present danger at the moment, though, as well, or, are this, or is, is this the industry being overcautious? No, it is a clear danger. Uh, it is growing. First, it was uh, about uh, vessels with having uh, Israeli interests. Now they are saying that it is anybody who or any shipping company who has called uh, uh, ports uh, in those parts of the uh, world, and uh, perhaps it'll. Uh, uh, escalate into uh, if you ever had called uh, any of those ports we will uh, we will uh, come after you uh, and it's not fair on the crew you see you know, everyone's uh, aware of where the voyages are going these days all ships are connected and uh, you wouldn't want to have a worried family or or 26 worried families uh, wondering if uh, 
your 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 husbands your uncles your your child's uh, ship has transited that strait safely you wouldn't want to have superintendent sitting in the office wondering if uh, uh, his vessel or has passed through safely or her vessel's passed through safely so it is a it is a clear danger at the moment. With that being taken out of the equation, with uh, ships, uh, the majority of ships, not willing to pass through the Red Sea, what's the knock-on effect? You mentioned a few moments ago about alternative routes, which will take longer. But what does that mean for us, the consumer? More money. Spend more money for your Christmas gifts in Europe, I think. Uh, that's what it means. Uh, uh, you know, ships already, those which have been loaded and have left uh, the Far East, China and places like this with your Christmas goodies have already uh, routed uh, around uh, Africa into Europe. So they're not taking a chance. Uh, you might not get that uh, that big Christmas gift that you ordered online on time, but uh, it'll definitely reach. It'll reach more expensive. Uh, and uh, it will. Uh, the immediate short-term supply chain disruption is what is the worry because those ships which are right now in the Red Sea and are in the northern part and are, are wondering whether to continue voyage or to turn back and go, go past the Suez again uh, is where the immediate uh, problem lies and the, and the short-term supply disruption is. And is that both ways? Because you mentioned this is a, a shortcut up into the media as well. Or in terms of the sort of global knock-on effect, is it those in Europe that are going to be more affected than those in other parts of the world? Yes, those who are listening, I must tell you, your Mercedes-Benz and your BMWs might not come here on time. You're if not you going to get your them. January the 1st delivery, are you? No, you're not. <laughs> so that's where it is. It's both ways, of course. Um, in terms of... The reaction. Obviously, we've seen uh, condemnation from a number of the major companies. The companies rightfully being very cautious at the moment. US overnight saying that it would lead an international naval operation that includes the UK, Canada, France, Bahrain, amongst others. Is that going to solve the situation? Well, it will not solve the situation. It will reduce its impact and give a sense of security. But uh, this problem is very different from the piracy attacks that were uh, very rampant in those uh, waters, must, must say. Uh, these are faster, they're more invisible. If you see a skiff coming towards you, you probably have some time to react. You would probably have armed guards on board, which most ships have. But if there is an aerial attack, if there's a drone coming and sending a small little zoop up your, mm. your tanks, you, you might not be able to catch it all the time. So it's not a foolproof. It is a worry at the moment. Your professional reading of the situation, obviously we're coming towards the end of the year. What's the next step here? What do you predict is going to happen? Uh, costs going up. Insurance costs have already doubled. The box uh, ship freights have already escalated to 40% over just this weekend. Uh, uh, so it, it's just going to be costlier to transit this, these waters. And those who have the time uh, and have not got uh, just-in-time deliveries and uh, supply chain commitments will, of course, reroute themselves. So uh, I think uh, the world will see its uh, levels uh, of shipments. People will uh, keep those long-term commitments, bearing in mind the risks. And uh, those who, who have a lot riding on their reputation, like the oil majors, will clearly avoid it. Large shipping companies uh, have already taken a stand because, uh, you know, you don't want media knocking on their doors, asking you difficult questions as to you could have done something about it, but you chose to take the risk. And here it is with, your, with, with a hole in your bucket and oil spilling out and things like that. So uh, no, no manager, no, no decision maker yeah. will, will take a knowing risk with, with 
transiting through those waters. Captain Zaria S. Irani, Managing Director, Constellation Marine Services. Can't thank you enough for your insight. All the best for the season as well and at the end of the year. And I thank you very much. Thank you very much and uh, wishing all your viewers also a very, very happy holiday season. Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Right, we're turning our attention now to foreign direct investment. And there's been some very good news because a new survey shows the Middle East is the only region in the world that has seen growth in the sector this year. And in even better news for us, at least here, that growth is primarily down to another strong year for Dubai, which leads every other global city by some margin. So what is it that we are getting so right? I'm joined now by Glenn Barkley. He is the principal FDI economist at Global Data. Joining us on Teams. Morning, Glenn. Are you well? Good morning. Yes, very early here, but I'm well. It is horribly early in Ireland. Thank you so much for getting up for us. We really appreciate it. Tell us, is Dubai uh, doing well? Um, Obviously, we are doing well, but are we doing... How come we're doing so much better than everybody else? By what margin are we doing better? Yeah, so I think I think the first thing to define about the data that we're talking about is it's it's greenfield FDI. So that's whenever a company establishes a foreign presence abroad and it typically creates jobs and has a capital investment. So this would be the likes of a Microsoft or an Apple opening an R&D center or opening a sales office. So I heard on the headlines there that you, you you were talking about the likes of M&A and investments in companies. So that's not the type of FDI that we're focusing on. It's physical expansions. So, that, so that's the first thing. Um, so it's a, it's a very positive type of FDI as well, which is, which is great for the local economy because it, it does create those jobs and has that investment coming into the economy. I think the reason why Dubai is so strong is because we had this complete macroeconomic uncertainty and what investors always seek is assurances over over their investments so they look, they typically look to to safe uh, regions and safe countries and they typically used to be the likes of um, the US UK Germany France who are all experiencing a lot of economic woes um, so the Middle East has become a very attractive region for for that reason um, and also the fact that it's it's a it's a high growth region, um, investors are seeing that it, there's a very positive business friendly environment, and it's got a robust legal system. It's got the low corporate tax rates. The talent is there. There's infrastructure, and Dubai has also diversified a lot of its offerings. So it's not focused on oil and gas investments anymore. Um, we see a lot of investments in the likes of software and IT services, business and professional services and financial uh, services. And historically, it's always been a, a strategic location as well. So where East meets West, um, and we have this uh, growing access then to, to very strong domestic and regional markets. So when you say Greenfield FDI, is that different to the type of investment that you'd see in joint public-private partnerships? Because I know that there's been a, a, a large amount of growth, a, a big focus on that here in the UAE, an attempt to bring part private investment into major infrastructure projects. Yeah, so typically, as long as uh, we, we would classify that that could still be greenfield investment, as long as the foreign entity owns a, a certain percentage of, of, of that project. Uh, but typically, a lot of greenfield investments are are solely company based, but you're absolutely right. There's been a, there's been a huge increase uh, and a huge demand, and companies again are seeking that type of insurance over those types of investments where they've got a very strong government 
um, to work with and, and they know that their investments will, will be fulfilled. What are the actual numbers we're talking about here? How much FDI have we actually seen into Dubai in the last twelve months? Yeah, so it's very so it's very tricky to 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 get an exact figure around around capital investments. Um, what we're what we're working off is is project numbers, and they will they will give uh, a, a different tail compared to the capital investments because we're seeing huge capital investment projects that are skewing figures. So we see Intel investing. Uh, at 10 million or 10 billion euros in uh, into in Germany, and that's really throwing off. Whereas the German trend of, of actual project activity is down by by 25%. So Dubai became the the leading destination con- uh, leading destination city globally uh, in 2021, overtaking the likes of London, Singapore, and, and Paris in, in doing so. And and we're seeing that. Uh, it's FDI since then, and in terms of project numbers, has increased substantially, and it's probably going to increase by another thirty to forty percent this year after having increased by by eighty percent. So we're talking in the thousands um, of, of of projects now that 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 uh, that it's it's reached that tipping point, and it's now over a thousand projects in, into Dubai, which is which is really an amazing feat, especially as I said with with all the volatility that we've seen in in the FDI world generally. Um, and a lot of countries this year are, are experiencing declines um, and, and the UAE is really being propped up. So Dubai accounts for about 80 to 85 percent of all um, FDI, Greenfield FDI projects into the UAE. Um, and it's and it's accounting for a significant proportion, around half of all um, FDI projects in, into the region. And as I said, the region itself, the, the, the Middle East region, is 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 doing well and there's other countries there's other competitors that that dubai has so yes. we, we've seen a huge surge in the likes of fdi and into saudi arabia so it has to be mindful of that the competition is there and the competition is increasing however um <laughs> dubai seems to be very much up to the task certainly at the moment anyway yeah i wanted to ask you about the outlook for 2024 and uh, saudi's enthusiasm to also attract fdi <laughs> it's one of their declared aims over the next uh, sort of three years, I suppose, as we head towards mm-hmm. 2030. Do you think that there's any chance that they'll, um, I suppose, uh, steal some of our thunder? <laughs> well, I, I, well, I think that's the goal. Well, well, it definitely is the goal, isn't it? <laughs> it's, def- it's definitely the goal, whether it will be achieved. I think I think partially, yes. So so they're, they're implementing some policies, so such as to, to try and attract, um, to to basically get business in Saudi Arabia, you now have to have a regional headquarters. Your your regional headquarters has to be based uh, somewhere in the kingdom. So that's that. So we, we are seeing an increase in those, and I think the goal for that is that they want something like 480 companies by by 2030 to have a, a regional headquarters. And we've seen some some big companies, some big American companies uh, and European companies already have established that. There is still some uh, cloud around. Um, for for example, if it has its regional headquarters in Saudi Arabia, it cannot have a second headquarters somewhere else. Yeah, not um, a lot of clarity and, on that. Yes, yeah, so the so the clarity and the and I think again, just going back to to the governments now are are playing such a pivotal role in FDI more so than than ever before, and I think that's where a lot of investors are 
are, are making their decisions now, which uh, political stability is always a thing in, in the FDI world. But to be honest, it's never been as prevalent as, as what it is now. And that's that's due to the, the, the shaky economic conditions, um, the, the, the amount of, of wars and conflicts that we have as well. Glenn, it's been a great pleasure having you join us on the radio. Thank you so much. Glenn Barkley there, Principal FDI Economist at Global Data. Just the highlights. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast. DP World have announced plans to relocate their global head office to Expo City Dubai. To find out more, producer Mohammed Suleiman has been speaking to Sultan Ahmed bin Salayam. Now, he is DP World's group chairman and chief executive. Mo had a really interesting conversation with him yesterday afternoon about the move, his outlook for 2024. And, of course, uh, the situation that we are seeing in the Red Sea right now and those disrupted supply chains. But Mohammed started by asking Sultan why they have decided to move their HQ from Jebel Ali to Dubai South. Well, we always had a plan to have a headquarter building since the 90s, actually. And we, every year we keep moving it and use the money for business expansion. But it reached a point where we experienced the expo during the expo uh, season uh, event. And uh, it was very, very convenient for us. The government has uh, developed the road network, the metro, and it is so fast to get in the expo and so, so fast to go to Jabal Ali. And when they announced that expo is gonna be a city, we really were excited. We already developed a very good uh, building there. That was really one of the best buildings, I would say, and one of the most visited uh, in the uh, expo season. And so we decided that we should move our headquarters there and be the first one to take advantage of it. We are an international company. Uh, We need to be in Jabal Ali. We need to be close to Jabal Ali. Uh, Not a lot of congestion. It, It takes maybe 20 minutes or less from Jumeirah to expo and to our office. And we felt it very convenient for us. Let's talk about sustainability. Um, DP World has pledged to be carbon neutral by 2040 and achieve net zero carbon emissions by 2050. How does moving to a place like Expo City Dubai help you achieve those very ambitious goals? Well, first of all, the, the Herdwater building is going to be a smart building, a sustainability building. There are going to be many innovations we will implement in developing it. So it will be a very nice place to work in. Uh, it will be uh, very comfortable for people. Uh, it will uh, make it smart that there is many, many uh, advanced technology we're going to add, which we will not uh, talk about today, but as such, sustainability, generating power, uh, this is very important for us. Uh, sustainability and uh, reducing carbon emission, uh, it's very important for DP World. It's part of our uh, strategies uh, for one important reason. First of all, yes, we are all in and supporting, protecting the environment. This is without doubt a goal of the government, uh, goal of UAE, and it's also a sustainability goal of GP World. But one thing very interesting for us is there is a misconception in the world where people feel if they're going to use alternative energy, it's going to be more expensive or if they're going to be carbon uh, neutral, then it's going to be at a cost. In our experience, we had many examples where we opted to reduce 
carbon emission bike, for example, electrifying all our equipment. And guess what? It's much cheaper. It costs whatever we spent in one year is probably going to be recovered within two to three years from maintenance costs and all that. You're using an equipment, using basically uh, diesel, and here you are using uh, electricity, which means less downtime, uh, less uh, breakage, and continuous work. Uh, all our buildings, our office building in Jabal Ali, and our customers' office buildings are all run on solar. This is something we done about almost seven, eight years ago. And the cost of uh, adapting the system, probably almost the cost of using power for one year. So we produce almost 40 or 45 megawatt power from solar, where we connect it to the grid with Diwa, and uh, we use out of that maybe 35 megawatt uh, in all our buildings. So all our buildings are actually using power. Uh, at night when we are not there, we use the grid, but nobody is there anyway. Uh, there are many, many other uh, ideas that we implemented around the world in different places like in, in Antwerp, where we convert garbage and waste into energy and uh, use it. Uh, in other areas, we are always helping grow mangrove. Mangrove is uh, known that it produces out of oxygen. So we participate uh, in many of these uh, projects around the world. Also, the ocean. The ocean is, is very important to protect. Uh, when you think about it, almost 80% of trade goes by sea or by water. That means more emissions affecting the, the water. And so we are uh, also involved in uh, growing, uh, for example, coral uh, in uh, in, in Port Rashidic, we have a lab where we grow coral to see how we can use it. There's a company, there's a, an initiative called Sea Walls, where we are also uh, participate there, where we basically use the key walls of the uh, port into like uh, habitat for fish. Uh, recently, of course, uh, His Excellency uh, Hilal uh, talked about a project of uh, again building. Uh, uh, corals uh, and uh, fish habitat throughout the water of Dubai. We were participating with them also, and that was the project that announced by Sheikh Hamdan. Uh, this is all really to uh, help the environment, and the uh, water and the coral are really like the oxygen breathing of the of the of the of the ocean of the water, and that's very important for us. Amazing. Now we're only a couple of weeks away from the end of uh, the year. Uh, what kind of year has 2023 been like for DP World? How would you summarize um, this year for, for your group? It was good for us. We, 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 we knew in the beginning uh, of the year 23 was it's going to be challenging. But uh, what helped us is that we are in diverse businesses around the world, uh, in so many places. And uh, the policy of Serving the customer and end-to-end solutions helped us. So the year, I think, ending very positive. We're looking forward for 24, where we think it's going to be a good year. We, you know, there are a lot of challenges. There are a lot of unknowns. Uh, business uh, is growing. Uh, demand is growing around the world. China just opened, so these are the positive side uh, of the uh, economy in the world. But naturally, there are challenges 
geopolitical issues which are either in our region or other regions around the world, these challenges always tend uh, to create obstacles and to create concerns. Uh, the protectionism is still uh, on the go and uh, around the world. And these are also concerns. We will look at uh, 2024 with optimism, but with also uh, caution. So we're taking all the precautions to make sure that we have uh, a tighter budget and expenditure. We naturally will spend on whatever we need to expand in, in new projects, in other projects, but we're watching the market, see how it goes and how we fit. Fantastic. Just very quickly, uh, Mr. Sultan, before we end, lots of stories doing the rounds about the Red Sea and the disruptions there. Um, what's your reading yeah. of the situation and how will it sort of impact shipping and, and yeah. The shipping line, I'm dealing with it. I mean, this is unfortunate to see disruptions uh, in the uh, Red Sea. Uh, you know, is that the first time it happened? It happened in the past, if you remember. First, we have the pirates, which were doing it as a business, which eventually the world, uh, I think, uh, powers uh, intervened. I think now the world powers are also in the Red Sea, and you'll see more and more engagement to deter these attacks, and hopefully things will go back to normal. And that is that's our producer, Mohammed Salaman, there speaking to Sultan Ahmed bin Salayam, who is DP World's Group Chairman and Chief Executive. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.